Hello and welcome to this penultimate episode, episode 5 in the series of the Kino Quickies podcast. This podcast is based on a series of live screenings of Quota Quickie films at the Kino Cinema in Bermondsey Square, a mere hop, skip and a teeny weeny jump from London Bridge Station. Each film is followed by a Q&A hosted by me, Dominic Delaghi, and our resident Quota Quickie expert, Dr Lawrence Napper of King's College London. And we're always joined by an excellent special guest and by our lovely audience. Now, I've recently heard the term Quota Quickie being recklessly bandied about to mean any low-budget film from the olden days. But they were a very specific thing from a very specific period. They were films made in the 1930s, churned out to fulfil the quota requirements laid out in the Cinematographic Parliamentary Act of 1927. But don't let me blind you with science here. If you want to find out about the subject, you can go to kinoquickies.com, click on the show notes for any episode, and you'll find links in there to information about this unusual chapter in British film history. Another thing you'll find in those show notes is a link to our ticket booking site because we have one more film to go in the season and you are more than welcome to attend. It's a film from 1937, that's towards the end of the Quota Cookie era. It's called Brief Ecstasy and it's a great film. It's an early one from Ealing Studios and so our guest for the Q&A is the great Charles Barr who wrote the seminal 1977 book about Ealing Studios called Ealing Studios. That's on Sunday, May 22nd and we'd love to see you there for the last film of our season. Find that link at kinoquickies.com. But the film for this episode, which we watched at the Kino on Sunday, May the 8th, 2022, is Say It With Flowers from 1934. It's an early film by director John Baxter, who is best known for his 1941 film, Love on the Dole. It stars Mary Clare as Kate, a flower seller on a London market, and features performances from some of the biggest stars of the Edwardian Music Hall. Little do the audience know, those unsuspecting people taking their seats at the Kino, that rather like an Edwardian Music Hall, they are about to be taking part in an interactive event. Let's head over to the Kino now to hear my bumbling introduction. Good afternoon, everybody. Good afternoon. Hello. Welcome to the Kino. And welcome back if you've been here before. I do see some regular faces. That's very nice. It's good to be regular. So this is film five in the Kino Quickest season. Say it with flowers, as you can see from there. Our guest, uh, that's me, Dominic Largi. I'm a bloke what makes podcasts. That's how they speak in Say It With Flowers. <laughs> Dr. Lawrence Napper over there is our resident... Coach Cookie Expert, and our special guest is Oscar-nominated film composer Gary Yershin, who's over there. Very excited to hear from Gary. Um, I have to admit, though, that when this is the film I've been most nervous about in terms of selling to an audience. Sorry, Lawrence. Sorry. Because on paper, it's not an enthralling prospect. <laughs> but I've been proven wrong because we've got a healthy house tonight. It's basically about some um, warm-hearted Cockney market traders and they are they're doing a benefit concert to raise money for their sick colleague who's the lady there with a the hat, that's, um, that's Kate. And uh, there's not a scintilla of uh, cynicism in the whole film. It's, it's, all, it's all lovely. Um, and it would have been a shame, actually, if we hadn't sold many tickets because this is actually a much more interesting film than uh, you might think and then I'm making out to be. <laughs> it's, actually, it's actually a really fascinating film and I'm pleased that Lawrence persuaded me to have it in the season because I think in terms of the season, it's, it's probably the most quota quickie-ish. He nods, he nods and he does his hand gesture, which means he, he concurs. It's a low-budget film, it's made quickly. Uh, it had this. It has this American distribution element to it, which is a big box tick for the uh, Quota Quickies. Produced by Julius Hagen, who is the producing king of the Quota Quickies, at Twickenham Studios, which is Quota Quickies Central. But the main thing is, about a third of the film is made up of pre-existing material. It's this. It's these music hall acts. So all you had to do really was get them to turn up, get them to do their thing, point a camera at them, and whammo, you've got 10 minutes of your film in the can. So it, it does have that slightly kind of churned out sense to it. But, that is that, but that's not to say it doesn't have merit outside of that. I mean, I think the film, the, the film sort of has respect for its, it, for its characters. Um, all the characters are drawn with kind of with love and compassion. 
uh, which I think sets it apart. And that's largely down to its director, writer and director, John Baxter, who I'm sure we'll talk about later on because he's a very fascinating character. The other thing that's very interesting about this film is the music hall stars. This was towards the end of the music hall era, really. Um, but the, the three major stars who feature in the film were enormous music hall stars in their day. One of them in particular, Charles, there's Charles Coburn, Mari Kendall, and the third person whose name is Florrie Ford. Florrie Ford, well done, thank you. Charles Coburn first set foot on stage 150 years ago in 1872. So the fact that we can sit here in 2022 and watch him do a performance is, I think, it's absolutely mind-blowing. So after the screening, we'll be having our Q&A as usual. Could I just ask you to not occupy the front row of the seats here for the Q&A because Gary's orchestra will be set up just here. It should be exciting for us all. And so if you could... After the film, if we could um, vacate and go to the bar, uh, just so we can set up, that'd be great. Also, buy <laughs> lots of drinks at the bar. There's a complicated maths going on, but basically, the better the bar does, the more chance we have of coming back for a second series. So yeah, fill your boots. Trying, trying. <laughs> I know, I'm, I'm doing it as well. <laughs> Drink in an unrestrained manner. <laughs> um, and then bring back, and, and, and lubricate your larynxes, because I think, Gary might have a sing-song lined up for us. Which... <laughs> so uh, there's that to look forward to. And before all of that, of course, we have our traditional... We're watching two trailers for Talking Pictures TV, and that's partly contractual and partly out of love. Uh, so uh, that's it. That's for me. So, Paul, if you could perform your magic and we'll watch the film. Thank you very much. Now, of course, when I said that, that we'd be setting up an orchestra, I was pulling the audience's leg for humorous effect. What I actually meant was a piano, which is something we could just about squeeze into the keynote's compact space. And normally at this stage of the podcast, as the keynote audience settles down to watch the film, I go into a fairly long section, which I like to call the boring bit, in which I take you, the deprived listener who was unable to attend the screening, on a sort of blow-by-blow -blow journey through the plot. I illustrate this with carefully chosen clips from the film, and then just before the story reaches its exciting conclusion, or because I've been hanging out with film academics recently, it's denouement, I break off from the synopsis and go back to the kino for the live Q&A. After that's wrapped up, we return to the plot summary, and after multiple spoiler warnings, we find out who done it, what was it, when were it, why did they done what they dude but on this occasion that's going to be tricky because the plot of say it with flowers is paper thin and the whole spoiler warning thing is a bit redundant it's basically about a group of kind-hearted market traders staging a benefit concert for their sick friend and pretty much the last third of the film and it's a short film of course being a quote a quickie is given over to that concert the first few minutes are taken up with stock footage of lovely flowery gardens and some commercial flower nurseries then we go into a series of short exchanges between market traders and customers, and it's a full 12 minutes before we meet Kate, the central character of the film, played by Mary Clare. Here's a little taster of those market moments which establish just what life is like in the good old down-to-earth, honest-to-goodness, salt-of-the-earth world of a 1930s London street market. There you are, lady. Fourpence. Made a mistake, ain't you? You mean tuppence? No. Tuppence the half-pound, lady. Here, what's the big idea? You were telling me I can't see straight presently. Why don't you put your prices up in plain figures? You want me to go shopping with a telescope under my arm? And for the future, I should go somewhere else. You, you dirty, dilapidated, double-dyed dodger. You know, every time I see that woman's face, I know what a hen looks like to a worm. <laughs> Half a pound of cheddar. What's that, lady? Half a pound of cheddar cheese. Cheese? This is soap, lady. What do you think I am, a dairy maid? This is sunlight. I cover the waterfront. Good morning. Good morning. How much are these? One and eleven. Rather short, aren't they? Oh, they'll come up to your expectation. Here. I've got something just suits you. Eight day clock. Goes eight days without winding. How long does it go if you do wind it? I don't mind fancy the little wild rabbit for his supper. Here, the very thing. You're quite sure they are wild? Wild, missus? See this one? It's stark staring mad. Yeah, Mrs. This fish ain't fresh. Oh, well. Well, you should have had it yesterday when I offered it to you. Oh, blood oranges, blood oranges, blood oranges, blood oranges. Are these blood oranges? 
Yes, lady. You're sure they're blood oranges? Sure. Finest blood oranges in the world for vegetarians. We are one, two, three, four, five, and one for his knob six. Thank, Thank you. you. Thank you, lady. Thank you. These bananas are not ripe. Not ripe? How do they get the skin off? Well, do you expect bananas with zip fasteners on for two for three apples? Put them down. Go on, gop away laughing. Although the establishing shot of the market is a long view of Berwick Street in Soho, it's never actually referred to in the film as such and the benefit concert takes place on the old Kent Road some distance away. There are also references to Covent Garden and to markets in the East End, so if you're a London geography nerd, the exact location is a bit of a head-scratcher, but I think that's the point. It's just supposed to represent a typical London market full of colourful characters who comprise a strong, mutually supportive community. As the camera travels up the market, capturing these little slices of life, it eventually settles on our protagonist, Kate, who runs a flower stall, and her husband, Joe, played by Ben Field. Kate almost immediately performs that well-known movie trope, that harbinger of doom, a little cough, because as we all know, when a person coughs in a film, they're going to be seriously ill or maybe even dead a few scenes later. Kate has a series of interactions with customers and fellow tradesfolk, which establish her as a well-loved and valued member of the community. She treats everybody she encounters, be they a high court judge or an unemployed itinerant, with good grace and charm, judging nobody by their appearance, their position in life or their sexuality. Cheer up, Kate. Morning, Kate. Haven't you found a job yet? Not yet, Kate. Things are still very quiet, you know. I don't think they'll be any better till we get a new government in. Oh, I shouldn't bank on that, Ted. Don't seem to make much difference who's in and who's out. No, they promise is enough anyhow. Well, they has to. If you want votes, you've got to make a bid for them, and the man who promises most gets in. Yes, but what does he do when he does get in? That's what I want to know. Well, he takes his 400 quid a year and tries to look intelligent. That is, when he ain't asleep. <laughs> Here, Ted, go over to Tito's and get yourself a nice hot cup of tea. God bless you. Thank you, Kate. God bless you. But that concerning cough of Kate's has been noticed by the kindly newspaper seller Sam, played by Roddy Hughes, who gives her some advice. <coughs> Cough's a bit troublesome, ain't it, Kate? You mustn't grumble. Might be worse. Still, I wouldn't take no chances this winter, Kate. Tain't worth it. Now, why don't you lie up for a bit and give yourself a real chance? Lie up for a bit of a cough? What happened to my pitch if I was to lie up? Well, it, it won't run away, and, and taint as if you're going to be away long. Don't you worry about me, Sam. I've been here a good many winters, and there's no reason to suppose this is going to be any worse than the last. All the same, I'm telling you, Kate, I wouldn't take no chances. And it appears Sam's worries are not without substance. As the very next scene opens, things have clearly taken a turn for the worse, and we find Kate lying in bed, a doctor by her bedside. Doctor, when can I get up? Not just yet, Kate. I don't want to be away from the market longer than I can help it up. Terribly worried about poor Joe. Now look here, Kate. If you are to get well quickly, you've got to stop worrying. There's nothing so bad as worry for keeping you back, you know. I know, Doctor, And there's another thing. You've got to go away and get a complete change of air before you go back to the market. Go away? How long for? Three weeks at least. Three weeks? Yes. Shorter time is no good at all. Now, Kate, you must take this seriously. I'm going to get well, ain't I? Yes. Oh. If you'll only do as I tell you. Well, I must be off now. I'll see you tomorrow about the same time. Goodbye, Kate. Goodbye, Doctor. So that's the prescription. Don't worry about anything and get out of smoggy old London for at least three weeks. But how is this even possible? While Kate is laid up in bed, Joe, who normally drives a donkey-drawn cart, has taken over her duties on the flower store. He bumps into Sam, the paper seller. How's business? Poorish. I ain't got the hang of it like the old woman. Why, even the flowers don't seem the same without her. I dare say they... They miss her like, same as we all do. I shouldn't be surprised if you're all right. You know, I've often thought that human beings are very like flowers. We just live for a little while and then... Fade away, <laughs> like the old soldiers. <laughs> well, you, you mustn't get downhearted, Joe. Kate wouldn't like that, you know. All right, I must keep me pecker up. Well, I'll be getting back to her now. Well, good night, Joe. Good night, Kate. Back at home, Kate reveals to Joe what the doctor has told her. Despite the seemingly impossible nature of the doctor's orders, he refuses to be beaten and is adamant that Kate will get her three weeks away from London. But three weeks, Joe? Why, it isn't possible. It's got to be possible. Something will turn up. 
You've got to get well again. That's all that matters. The money, Joe. I know. <coughs> I ain't one for grumbling, Kate. But it do seem hard that a few pounds should stand between you and getting well. Yes. I wonder if them folks as is high up in the world can ever realise what a few pounds can mean sometimes to the likes of us. When I think how you've worked all these years and uh, when it's just a matter of two or three weeks rest, well, it, it don't seem right. It don't seem right, old girl. But Joe realises he does have a way of raising some cash. He has an asset he can sell. He hitches his cart to his moke, that's slang for donkey, and goes to visit his friend, Bill, played by George Carney, who runs the fish and chip shop, to have a painful conversation. I remember hearing you say the other day as how your moke cell was getting on and... Uh, I don't know. You know, not so young as she was. Well, who is? Tell me that. Well... Ginny here's got a good half dozen years' work ahead of her, and as I shan't be needing her no more... Not I... needing her? Do you mean you want to sell her? Yes, that's it. I shouldn't like a stranger to ever. I know she'd have a good home with you. Well, I shan't say that I won't be needing a new milk sooner or later. What do you want for her? What's she worth, you Bill? Well, let me think it over. I'll let you know tomorrow. Business is improving, and it's just possible that I will be needing another moke. That's Kate. Oh, she's much better, thank you, Bill. Oh, that's good. We're all looking forward to see her back again on the old pitch. That won't be just yet, Bill. You know, she wants a change. A yeah. drop of sea air or something. That's what the doctor said. Where are you going to take her to? I thought of Sardin. So you're going to sell the old moke, eh? Well, I'll let you know. I know, Bill. If she should drop in to see the old girl, not a word about the moke. She's bound to miss her for a few days. Trust me, Joe. Well, i got to get back in the shop. So long, mate. See you later. Come on, Jenny. Cheerio, Bill. During the course of the conversation, it dawns on Bill that Joe and Kate's situation is much more dire than anybody had thought. He quickly convenes a meeting of some of the market traders. You could have knocked me down with a feather when he told me he wanted to sell the moke. They must be well up against it when it comes to that. They are up against it, and it's up to us to see them through. Well, there ain't one of us here that Joe and Kate ain't done a good turn to, sometime or other. That's a fact. And it's because of that they find themselves where they are today. Aye, and I'll tell you something else. If it comes to that, the whole market owes them a debt. Do you remember the time the council was going to wipe us out for street improvements? If it hadn't been for old Kate going up with that petition, Gordon knows where we'd all have been today. Well, what's the move, Bill? Well, I'll tell you. It'll take a bit of time to fix up things proper, but in the meantime, it's help they're needing, not sympathy. The first step they take is to club together to buy Ginny the donkey so that Joe has some immediate cash, but they have no intention of separating Joe from his beloved moke. Later that evening, Bill meets up with Joe in the stable. Well, here I am, Joe. I'm sorry I'm late. I got held up in the shop. Well, here you are, the doings. Just giving it the once over, eh? Yes. It's all correct. All correct, Bill. Don't forget she likes her half pint sometimes. Oh, just one thing, Joe. I've got a little favour to ask of you. Huh? You see, the fact is that I haven't got stable room for the moke yet. And I was wondering if you'd mind keeping her on here and looking after for me. Of course, I'd pay for the keep. That is, if you don't mind. Mind? What? I feel... <laughs> well, that's settled. <laughs> Well, much obliged to you. You've got to be up and off now. All the best to Kate. Do you hear that, Ginny? Although I've sold you, I ain't going to lose you. It looks as if something has turned up. <laughs> and the second part of the plan is to stage a fundraising benefit concert, arrangements for which go off without a hitch. Posters are printed, tickets are sold, artists are engaged, a venue is secured, and before we know it, the big night has arrived with Kate and Joe as the honoured guests. Somehow, though, this member of the public has failed to realise which extremely famous music hall stars were taking part in the show. That's one of Charlie Coburn's songs. One of Charlie Coburn's. 
It is Charlie Coburn. Cheers, sir. It's Keith. Cheers, sir. Cheers. Yes, indeed, it is a Charlie Coburn song, and that's Charlie Coburn singing it. And this is the first act in Kate and Joe's Benefit concert. Charles Coburn was a huge star of the musical, who, by the time the film was made, had been performing on stage for over 50 years. And this is his most famous song, The Man Who Broke the Bank at Monte Carlo. Next up, we have Mari Kendall. She'd begun her career at the age of five, and when Say It With Flowers was released in 1934, she was around 60 years old. She also sings one of the most well-known songs, Did Your First Wife Ever Do That? You ladies who are married to a widower, I fear, you've often heard your husband talk of his departed dear. Perhaps he'll make comparisons between yourself and she, but there, don't lose your temper. Just take this advice from me and uh, don't you worry if your hubby tells to you. All the wonderful things that his first wife used to do. Don't start crying. If you do, you are a threat. Grab him by the whisker, swing him round the room and say, Did your first wife ever do And now Bill's getting nervous. The next act is not a famous star, it's his kids or saucepan lids, as he says, because, you know, Cockney. Bill stands in the wings, proudly watching his progeny. In reality, this is tap-dancing duo Violet Kearney and Bill Browning. And then topping the bill is the third of our big names, Australian music hall legend, Florrie Ford. Thanks very much, boys and girls. I'm sure it's a great pleasure for me to be here this evening to help our old friends, Kate and Joe. And I'm sure that you'll all wish them the same as I do, that they've packed up their troubles in their old kit bag. Now, come along, boys and girls, all together. Pack up your troubles in your old kit bag and smile, smile, smile. While you are losing the delight, your bag, smile, boys, and Flory performs a medley of songs, and then it's time for Bill to remind us why we're all here. I want you all to join me in wishing our dear old pals, Kate and Joe, long life, happiness, and good luck. Go on, Joe, say something. Uh, Come on, Joe. It's no use, Kate. I ain't no good at speechy fine. Here, go on. You've got the gift of the game. Go on, coward. Yes, go on, Kate. Go on, Kate. Right. Here goes. I just want to say this. It's not about myself. It's about Joe. Oh, shut up. <laughs> I just want to tell you that however dark things have looked, Joe here has never let it get in his way. He always said something would turn up. And sure enough, it did. <laughs> what makes it even more wonderful is that it's our own people, our old friends that turned up. 30 years in the market, never at a loss for a word, and now I want to say such a lot to you, I can't say nothing. I'm afraid you'll have to do what you've often done before, dears. God bless you. Just take us on trust. (laughs) And then to close the show, Mari Kendall returns to the stage and performs her biggest hit, which just happens to be Kate and Joe's favourite song, Just Like the Ivy. And it's this song that takes us to our final image. Kate and Joe trundling on the back of Joe's cart, perhaps on their way to Southend, pulled by faithful old Ginny the Moat. Just say it with flowers. 
And as the lights come up in the auditorium at the Kino in Bermondsey Square, grown adults hurriedly wipe the tears from their eyes and then rush off to the bar. Ten minutes later, we're all reconvened. In the middle of the stage is our special guest, Gary Yershon, who is seated at an electric keyboard. Normally, of course, he insists on a Steinway Grand, but beggars can't be choosers. Lawrence is there. I'm there. Our visiting sound engineer never has pressed record. So off we go. OK, hello, everybody. Thank you for coming back. Thank you. Normally, I begin these little Q&As with the question, did we enjoy the film? But I think the answer was, yeah. I know the answer in advance. Excellent. Now, just to say, we have, I always forget to mention this, but we have a roving mic over there, held by the delectable Robin, and he'll be... Um, roving Robin. If anybody wants to um, interject, please feel free. Uh, so, I think there are two main things to talk about in this film. Music, and it'd be a shame not to talk about the music with old Gary here, and John Baxter, who's a very, very interesting director. Um, where should we start? Gary, do you want to play us in with a tune? I'm joking. <laughs> no, you can do. You can do. You can do. So you did. You did a lot of research, didn't you? And so, uh, we Not that up. much. Uh, quite, uh, Gary, Gary, and I met up at the BFI a couple of weeks ago to watch one of John Baxter's earlier films called Doss House. Doss House. And he impressed me with the amount of work he'd been doing on the film, um, including meeting up with uh, a historian from the British Music Hall Society. Peter Chart, very nice man from the British Music Hall Society, who put me in the right direction about a couple of things. Tell me about what you learned from John about the... Uh, was it John? No, Peter. No, Peter. Uh, about the, the history, because it's, it has a very specific starting point, doesn't it, from what I, what I gather from... Well, he, he thinks that the first music hall, that is, the, the, a room associated with a pub or a tavern, as it was called legally, was up in... He, he places it in Bolton in something like 1834 or 5 or something like that, and then it slithers its way down south. The point about it is that it's industrial. Uh, this, this is um, post-industrial revolution popular entertainment, and uh, it developed out of inns, taverns, that kind of thing. And I was reminded here that they go into the pub when they're setting up the benefit for Kate and Joe. Bill goes, comes out of the pub having uh, talked to the landlord and the landlord has said, yes, they'll let them use his concert room. He actually uses that phrase, I don't know if you remember that, but that's exactly what it was. It was a room attached to a pub and out of that when the audiences started to build, they then built separate buildings and they became the music hall of halls of fame, you know, the, the bigger buildings that um, catered to the populations of industrial towns and cities. There was something like, was it 380 or something in, in London? Yeah. At the height of the music hall era, which was the same number of the rest of the country put together. More so it became a very London thing. Is there any, any particular reason why that happened after it came from... Is it just the fact that it's the biggest city? I guess it's density of population, yeah. And, uh, of course, um, one of the things that happened in London in particular was the railroads, and uh, they brought people in, uh, and the West End was created as a kind of money cow for theatre owners and so on. During the, I suppose, 80s, 1860s, 70s, 80s, increasingly. In this is the scene where Mari Kendall is singing like a very sentimental song at the end, I mean, people were laughing and stuff, and it is quite funny when people start grinning at the camera and grinning at the, you know, smiling at their spouses and stuff. But there's a shot where the camera pans across the audience and they look, you know, old and weary, and it must have been lovely to go to these places. If you, if you work you know, 12-hour days in terrible conditions, to go to somewhere where you can have a drink and people are singing a nice song in a bright lit place. You do get a sense of that from the film, that it was for people to, you know, see something nice in their day, you know. Yeah, I'm sure that's right. And uh, um, particularly in places with huge factories and docks and um, sewing shops and all, where you had to put the quite drudgy work in. Uh, to come to something like this. And it was all allied because it grew out of alcohol, grew out of the pubs. What's a bit depressing, um, and I speak as a non-drinker, but as the years went by and the 19th century became more and more abstemious, or, you know, tried to be, to control it, the alcohol thing, gradually the alcohol was removed 
from these places. And, and seating went in as opposed to be people being able to promenade and free seating. Because really, initially, these were music halls. They were just halls. They, they didn't have seats in. They may have had balconies, but they were just sort of stages plonked at the end of quite long rooms or as long as you could get. And then the seating went in. It's very similar to the whole seating debate in, in football stadiums and so on. And again, health and safety came in in an act in 1878 to reg fire regulations. There had been so many fires. But once you put the seating in, uh, there's another area of control and another area of atmosphere slightly dying. And uh, it's all a bit sad and melancholy. So this is very nostalgic for that kind of audience, I think. Like, if you think about, like, try to imagine what early music halls are like, I think they might be a bit like drag pubs are now. <laughs> you know, that it's a pub with a stage, and then the, it, you know, it becomes more of a thing, and then you move into the seating, and it becomes all, you know, it becomes more about the actual performance. Also, the other thing that's really interesting, of course, is that actually there's a there's a continuity between music hall and the sort of the way in which musical fades out, and cinema, because cinema is exactly that thing that you're describing. You know, you've been working in the factory all day. You're, like, super tired and, like, you want a bit of entertainment. And, you know, by the 1930s, it's the cinema you're going to rather than the musical. And I think there's a sense in which this film is really about that crossover. You know, those audiences who are going to the cinema to see this film 30, 20, 15 years earlier, they would have been going to the music hall. Yes, and to the same buildings. Yes. A lot of them were, were um, remade as cinemas, the music halls. Yeah. And John Baxter had a background in music hall, didn't he? Yes, yes. yes. As, a, as a performer or...? I don't know that he was he, a performer. He was a performer, he was a performer yeah. yeah. He was a performer uh, after the First World War. Uh, he went into concert parties. Do you know about concert parties? <laughs> Good companions and so on. Piero troops and all that kind of thing. And um, he went touring and then he went into management. And that's where he met a lot of these people who he, he puts in his repertory company over the next 20 or 30 years. Yes, it's amazing, actually. John Baxter films are you'd like, you know, George Carney's kind of always there, who uh, plays Bill, who's the guy who puts on the musical show, um, you know, there's a whole kind of range of faces that occur again and again in John Baxter films. Scotty, he's in quite a few Scotty's of them. Scotty's in lots of them, yeah, yeah. Two weeks ago with, with Sweeney Todd, they seemed to have a, a rep company as well. Was In the quickie era, was there a different rep companies? No, loose rep companies like that. Yeah, so I think that's a reasonable way of thinking about it. And actually, if you think about it today, you, you know, you get that. So you can always tell, like, Horrible Histories is a rep company. Mm. And yeah, they make ghosts and they're kind of the same kind of figures. And you're like, oh, yes, I know those people from Horrible Richard Histories. Richard Curtis films. Uh, Richard Curtis films, yeah. same thing. So I mean, I think all studios and all kind of producers have sort of actors that they use again and again and they like to use. And, and obviously audiences are like, oh, yeah, you know, I recognise these from the previous from the previous film. I think John Baxter is really interesting. I mean, partly Baxter is really interesting because of that focus that he has on working class life. And, you know, he makes quite a lot of films like this, which are about music halls or kind of, I mean, he makes another film later on called Music Hall. Yeah. <laughs> um, and quite a lot of those kinds of things. He also makes films about Doss Houses. You saw Doss House. He kind of remakes Doss House sort of later on in the early 40s. So he's got a real kind of set of themes that he's interested in and which he returns again and again to. And a recurring plot, yeah. which is the, the, the thing about the benefit. Um, let's all club together and do something good for save the building, save this person. That comes up again and again and again. He never tires of it. And it kind of gives him the opportunity to put these acts in. Very similar to, to the finale of, of this act turn up in a lot of his yeah. films. Yeah, yeah. Totally. I remember I was watching as a kid watching um, The Good Old Days um, and, you know, obviously hating it because I was a kid. And it, um, what? What kind of a kid were you? <laughs> <laughs> um, or not really watching, my grandma would watch it, you know. But as I get older, I kind of think, why wasn't it more sort of revolutionary? Why, is, why isn't there a sort of political element to it? And it feels like there should be, because John Baxter was all about, you know, the, you know, the poor, downtrodden, working man and everything. Why isn't it... And Love and the Dole has a sort of political element to it. Is it... Have we... Has it been... So I just was going to say while I got it. <laughs> I know, I nicked it. Sorry. Um, but <laughs> but um, there was a lot of suffrage theatre that was used to sort of promote the suffragettes. Um, um, so that was that was very political and out there. Anyway, your, your point. Yeah, sorry. 
Music Hall did have its political level and its social level, but it's kind of been lost. It's the popular songs and the sentimental songs that have carried forward through the years. And it was kind of pushed out, like you say, when it became seating, and that's why that all came in to kill the political level. Sorry, to kill the political level of it. That's why they brought in the the the, the seating, the, the the policing of it. So it's not just a modern perception of it being non-political. It actually did get depoliticised originally, and it moved out. Uh, you know, through the Victorian age. By the end of the Victorian age, it probably yeah. all gone. But it did have a social and political There's level to it. A narrative that I mean, in musical history, it's all about. You know, it started out being quite radical, and then it moved into being commercial and big. And yeah, by the time Sir Oswald Stoll is like building the Colosseum, it's like there's no interaction between the stage and the auditorium because it's an enormous space and also it's highly commercialised. But I think there's a sense in which, like, that's a good narrative. I'm not sure it's complete. I'm not sure I buy it totally because there is politics in this film, yeah. absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Again, if you think about the analogy with drag... You know, you've got you've got drag in pubs, which is which can be super political, where the audience are right there in the same like as close as, for those of you listening. The Kino Berms <laughs> is pretty small space, like it's quite intimate. I could reach out and touch the people in the audience. Don't don't. don't. <laughs> <laughs> and you know that's how it was, um, and that's how it is in in drag clubs. And then it becomes commercialised, and it, so there's a sense in which it becomes more established, more popular, more commercial. It sort of changes. I was also wondering whether there's a sense that the, in the same way that the innuendo is kind of built into things in a kind of very subtle way, whether the politics is in in there in a very similar way, that it isn't, it's not foregrounded in the same way, so we don't necessarily read it that way, but it's there. Yes, and the the police were out for these people in the, the sense that, that there are, uh, there's a famous-ish case of a woman called Laura Ormiston Chant. A popular name, I can tell. And um, Laura Ormiston-Chant was a quite radical feminist. And she went to the Empire Music Hall, which is now the Empire Leicester Square, certainly on the same site. This is in 1894. She was appalled, appalled at what she saw. It was an open hall with a stage at one end, and there were women of a certain kind walking around with no better than they should be, (laughs) touting for business, and she was not having it. And she went to the London County Council, which was issuing the licence, and the licence of the empire was about to come back up. And she um, gave a long speech, apparently, saying that this was appalling and this has got to be stopped. And they revoked the the alcohol licence. They revoked the licence of the empire and they, they put up... Is this the one? that They put up screens of some kind to prevent the promenading yeah. by the women. Yeah. And um, punters tore, tore the screens down. So this is 1894. It's actually quite late. And the empire's quite a big... Venue. I mean, it's quite a big exclusive. But, but but the idea is like, yeah, the promenade happens sort of behind the seating. There's an area where people can walk up and down, but they can still see the stage. And then there's the bar beyond that, and that's where these ladies are like doing their thing. Uh, talking about that in an, in an, an Inspector Calls, which is set in the Edwardian era and lead up to Second World War, Daisy Renshaw is picked up in the musical, and the ins- uh, it's, it's quite blatant, but not not obvious that it's talking about prostitution in the bars around the music hall in an inspector calls yes that's an interesting link so that the the air of naughtiness oh well the air of naughtiness is in any theatrical performance i think if we're lucky <laughs> <laughs> talking theatrical performance oh the reason this is here this piano keyboard is because i wanted to talk about the three pieces of music um, which accompanied the long opening sequence. The padding. You watch the flowers going from soil to market. And um, the third one is the most familiar. It's the waltz of the flowers from Tchaikovsky's Nutcracker. And you will have all recognised that from Fantasia or something like that, the original Fantasia. Or from your evenings at the ballet, for all I know. <laughs> but the other two are, are kind of really obscure the second one, which was a guy singing, um, Thank God for the garden. 
Now, there's a famous recording of that, which you can find on YouTube, by John McCormack, famous Irish tenor. But I've only ever heard that as a shh kind of disc. And um, that seemed to be a very fresh recording, and I don't know whether it's him or not. An aficionado would know. I don't know who that was, but the song is by a woman called um, Teresa del Riego, who's, who's English but of Spanish descent. And she was one of a kind of group of women who wrote... Um, women were allowed to write parlour songs. You know, you're allowed to do that. Liza Lehman wrote the famous There Are Fairies at the Bottom of My Garden, and she's a contemporary. And there's a woman called Amy Woodford Finden um, who wrote a Kashmiri song, which is, is quite lovely. And they're all around the same time. They're all born around the 1860s and 70s. And so they're more or less contemporary with Mari Kendall and Florrie Ford. But the, the music couldn't be more different. Thank God for a garden, be it ever so small. Uh, and it's all very hyper-respectability. And that's, I think, the kind of thing that Laura Ormiston Chant probably would have liked uh, rather than the mus music hall song. The first song, and which you're going to help me sing, <laughs> is an 1870s American song called Won't You Buy My Pretty Flowers. And in 1870s, you're talking about the beginning of what was to become Tim Pan Alley. And by the time you hit the glory days of Mari Kendall and uh, Florrie Ford, it's a completely established song factory. And um, when you think that these songs went all over the world and there was no radio, there was no television, there was no... It just was done by theatrical performance and sheet music. That is quite amazing. And one of the famous, the first million seller was um, After the Ball. Um, after the ball is over, after... So that, that's a million seller of sheet music in the 1890s. That is quite remarkable, isn't it? Just shows you the factory setting. Anyway, this one. Won't you buy my pretty flowers? You deserve to hear... The whole song. First of all, Paul's going to do some, with some technology. Oh, Paul's... Hey, look at that. <laughs> okay, so I'm going to rehearse you, okay? Yeah. Are you ready? Yeah. So. <laughs> there are many sad and weary. Try that. There are many sad and weary. In this pleasant world of ours, in this pleasant world of ours. So put that together. There are many sad and weary in this pleasant world of ours, crying every night so Pardon me. Cry. Could you edit that out, please? Crying every night so dreary. Try that. Crying every night so dreary. Won't you buy my pretty flowers? Won't you buy my pretty flowers? I see a future for all of you. <laughs> right. When the time comes, lift up your voices in song. <laughs> Underneath the gas lights glitter Stands the little fragile girl Heedless of the night winds bitter as they round about her whirl While the hundreds pass unheeding In the evening's waning hours Still she cries with tearful pleading Won't you buy my pretty flowers yourselves? There are many Sad and weary in this pleasant world of ours, crying every night so dreary. Won't you buy my pretty flowers?
That's very good. Ever coming, ever going. Men and women hurry by, heedless of the teardrops gleaming in her sad and wistful eye. How her little heart is sighing in the cold and dreary hours. Only listen to her crying. Won't you buy my pretty flowers? And there are many sad and weary in this pleasant world of ours, crying every night so dreary. Won't you buy my pretty flowers? Last verse. Not a loving word to cheer her From the passers-by's heard Not a friend to linger near With her heart by pity stirred Homeward goes the tide of fashion, seeking pleasures, pleasant bowers, none to hear with sad compassion. Won't you buy my pretty flowers? And there are many sad and gloomy in this pleasant world of ours Hurrying every night so dreary Won't you buy my pretty flowers? Give yourselves a round You don't expect that for 12.50, do you? That's, uh, that's your money's worth right there but it, as, a, as a song, it, it's very similar to the tone of the That's film, brilliant. don't you think? Yes, and actually there's a connection to cinema here because obviously before cinema got invented, there are a whole load of precursors to cinema, one of which is a magic lantern. And there are magic lantern slide sets which are this song, which are the story of this song and the lyrics so that you, like, you could sit in a Victorian place, you know, entertainment, and you would, you, you know, the lanternist would give you the, just as just as Paul has done here, give you the lyrics and images which illustrate the so story. So still images of maybe somebody selling flowers. Yes, it's of, like of a slideshow, like a yeah, PowerPoint, right. I suppose, but which is a precursor <laughs> to cinema. <laughs> Brilliant. Do we have any questions from the audience? We need to finish quite soon. But, um, or anybody got any requests? No, no, no. Oh, no, I can see hands up. I can see hands up. I just have a question about community singing. What this made me think of was, I don't have the accent, but come from a very working class family in the west of Scotland and, you know, shipbuilding community, all that business. When I was growing up, every event we had as a family that was singing, you know, the aunties got up and sang, the grannies got up and sang, everyone got up and sang. We got up and sang as we were growing up. And at some point, I realised that wasn't cool. And then I just wonder kind of what happened to that because we've gone into this, we've gone back in a way in, the, in kind of like this kind of stage entertainment with your Britain's Got Talent and your X Factors and all this where people are now, it's cool again to have a talent to get up and sing and have people on your side. I just wonder what you think of that, Gary. What happened to community singing and people... It, even in the film, they talk about, oh, we're going to bring the amateurs on. And they go, oh, God, don't bring the amateurs. And then they bring the amateur dancers and they're brilliant. <laughs> I don't know. I, I, it's a very interesting question. When I was at school, um, we had a book called Community Singing. And it had this list of umpteen songs in it. And we, we learned them all. And we would sing them. I don't know. I suppose it's got something to do with a sense of community and something to do with commercial music making. If you think it's coming back, great. You know, I've seen I, in the Educating Rita 
don't if you know that film, when um, yeah. she wants to break away from her working class community and they're all, her and her husband, her husband's family and her family are all down the pub singing and she's not into it at all because she wants to kind of get away and do something a bit more sophisticated, <coughs> get herself an education. Yeah. It wasn't that cool. But I had to get up and sing for my grandma when I was <laughs> up until embarrassingly late. <laughs> Pianos in houses. I mean, you know, my, my granny could play the piano. Yeah, all my older generation could as well. Yeah. Anybody else got any ideas? The, the mic's come to the back there. So it's it's not about community singing. Though <laughs> community singing is kind of great. And I have occasionally been to the Players Theatre where they still do it. Uh, they still sing those sort of songs. But I was going to say nobody has said anything about uh, the heroine of the film, who's the reason I'm here, Mary Claire, who's fantastic. Uh, you may recognise her from such classic roles as she's the evil baroness in the, in, um, in the Lady Vanishes. And if you've seen The Next of Kin, she's a drug pusher in that. But I have a quest for Lawrence, which is Lawrence has a rather marvellous story about Mary Claire oh that he's going to tell. <laughs> <laughs> she was also, let, let's not forget that Mary Claire was also the landlady in London Town, perhaps one of the greatest yeah. films ever made in the British <laughs> film industry. Or perhaps not. Is that the musical? <laughs> that is the Sid Fields musical, which was a yes. massive, massive flop. Yeah. <laughs> but Mary Claire is, an, I mean, she's a fascinating figure, obviously. And she was big on the stage. So she, you know, she was in 1920s films. She was a Linda in The Constant Nymph, uh, a film directed by Adrian Brunel, who then later wrote to Gaumont British and said, you know, maybe we should star Mary Claire in our next film. But maybe not because... She's got rather thick wrists nowadays. <laughs> uh, she had starred in Noel Coward's Cavalcade. And I don't know if you know about Cavalcade, but it's a very expensive production at Drury Lane. It's very sort of uh, patriotic. It's a kind of pageant of British history from the Boer War up until the point where it was staged, which is kind of the mid-1930s. And at the end of Cavalcade, her character, she played the sort of matriarch of the family, has this very patriotic toast, which she gives which is sort of, you know, to England and to the history of England and to all the boys who've died over the years in wars, and blah, blah, blah. And later on, during the Second World War, it's kind of mid-Second World War, she's touring in the provinces in some kind of quite kind of duff war horse theatrical show. And the show ends and there's applause. And after the applause is finished, somebody in the audience says, Oh, Mary, oh, give us the toast from Cavalcade. You know, we all need a boost. Give us the toast from Cavalcade. And Mary sort of steps forward and provides this amazing kind of patriotic toast. And apparently, from that moment onwards, you couldn't shut her up. <laughs> you know, every single, you know, performance, she was like, I'll do the toast from Cavalcade now. <laughs> yeah, she's a great... Uh, a figure, I think, Mary Claire. And, and brilliant in the film. She's very good in this, I think. I, I mean, some some of the, the scripting is chuckle-worthy, but she, I think she's pretty affecting. And she was born in Lambeth. Yes. Yeah, so she's a, she's a local girl. Um, oh, no, Chuck, in Southwark. We don't like those Lambeth people or these people <laughs> in Southwark. I, I think she had her passport by that time, okay. and she could cross the Barrabool. Okay. And But there was... Just for info, Charles Coburn was a Stepney boy like myself. Difficult, though, you may find that to believe. And Mari Kendall, Bethnal Green. And uh, Florrie Ford, I think she's from Melbourne. Or yeah, she's Australian, yeah. 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 She's like an um, Australian representative here who can tell you all about her, I'm sure. That's, uh, I mean, that is amazing. She came over here when she was 20. And she was playing principal boys. I mean, th with that heft... You know, <laughs> I find that ph phenomenally inspiring. Are you Peter suggesting that she had thick wrists? You just said <laughs> <laughs> yeah. she says. Peter Charlton, the, the musical guy, uh, gave me a picture of her in her in a principal boy outfit, and it's it's just fabulous. Was know? she chunky in those as a principal boy? Massive. Oh, okay. You know, she was like this, and she knew it, and she celebrated it. Yeah. I thought it was brilliant. Yeah. The microphone's with a gentleman at the back there, right. far away. Um, so I, I mean, full disclosure, I, I was previously a student of Lawrence's, so I probably should remember more Forced about this. to watch this film, <laughs> of course. <laughs> but I've come so. back, so, I mean, it, it is a winner. Um, but you, you mentioned the, the scripting, Gary, and obviously I know that these films were typically made over the course of about a week. Do we know, kind of going into it... Did they have a tight script? Because there were a lot of, you know, well-thought-out comedy moments. But also there, there was a sense of 
possible improvisation where you're sort of like, you know, as you're going through the market and you're just seeing what are effectively just sketches set at different stools. Do, uh, do we know kind of, yeah, how tightly scripted and organised it was? I don't think, I mean, I don't know. I, it, the, the credit is to H. Uh, I forget who the name is, but it's a it's a, a guy who does all of those uh, those Julius Hagen uh, things, and you know, like that, not to be rude or anything, but quite a lot of the Julius Hagen films that do have him credited as the script person are not as good as this film <laughs> script wise. Um, and but I do think what's so I do think there probably was a sense of kind of improvisational kind of culture going on, partly because it's a, it's, you know, it's a repertory company, as we've already described. But I do think it's worth kind of pointing out how brilliant those early scenes are. You know, actually, the pacing of this film is amazing because you get that early sequence in the market, which is basically gag after gag after gag. After, it's like, it's totally gag worthy. And then suddenly it shifts tone and it's like, you know, here is the issue here are how we're going to resolve it. Here are a range of serious ideas about the ways in which working class people can pull together to help each other. Um, and it doesn't shy away from the politics of that description, of that discussion. It's, it's like beautifully sort of structured, I think. It's an interesting point. I mean, there's a guy, the guy who played the fruit seller. Uh, I think blood I, oranges or, or grapefruit. <laughs> Not grapefruit. Yeah, the blood oranges. Blood oranges. The blood oranges. <laughs> Off away laughing. Yeah. Him. I think he's Tom Costello, who is un, who is in the publicity stuff that you sent. Ah. He's mentioned, he was a big musical star. Uh, he's not mentioned in the credits, and I wondered whether stuff was cut out, or he was so spectacularly well-known <laughs> that they didn't have to credit him. But they do credit spectacularly well-known Charles Cobb and Florrie Ford and Marie Kendall. I can't quite work that out. I wondered whether... He was doing his stuff in the fruit cellar stuff. What was that line he said? Hop, hop away laughing lady. Hop away laughing lady. When you get that scene of uh, Pepito <laughs> and her dad uh, and the, the, the potential suitor, to me that, that, that felt like it was setting up the dad performing at the end because he goes on and on about being an opera singer. Yeah. And you sort of think if you were scripting it, that would be a setup and payoff, but... Maybe it was just in the moment. He's like, oh, well, I'm an Italian, I suppose. I'll, I'll go on about yeah. singing opera. There's one cliche we've not ticked off the Italian box yet. We'll yeah. <laughs> Anybody else for any more? It's nearly four o'clock. <gasps> oh, sorry. Lordy, what's going on? I mean, we have to we have to put some money over the bar because obviously that's how we're paying for this venue. Exactly, Just yeah. like the people in the film. So, so don't go home. <laughs> go to the bar. Buy all the drinks. Do some community singing. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> oh, bring it what? on! What? What could? Oh, just like the ivy, which just which like is um, no, um, which um, no, I don't think I could busk it. <laughs> the one that she sings very, very badly at the end of that film was her theme song. Was her big, big hit. Um, People laughing at that, wouldn't they? Anything else for anybody else? I think that unfortunately is it. Gary, have you got anything to plug? We like to do a little plug at the end. If you, if you, uh... Uh, yes, I've got a show at Sands Films uh, over the way in um, Rotherhithe on June the, I think it's 23rd. I'll tweet it. It's called uh, Left Turns and it's um, full of socialist songs. Yay. Excellent. <laughs> <laughs> do join in. It's a hotbed. Yes. <laughs> Lawrence, anything you want to... Has your thing up yet that you did for Westminster? Is it, is it currently available? I think it is, available? Nikki, is it up? Tell them about my it, thing first. Yes, I, I haven't yet posted <laughs> on YouTube. It will do. Westminster Live, if you just Google Westminster Live feeds YouTube, Lawrence's thing will be there. And, and um, then in, in two, two weeks' two time... Weeks time. <laughs> oh, that was in stereo then. Uh, two weeks' time, it's the last film in the Kino Quickies series. Oh... oh. But maybe not the last series, if you spend money at the bar. Oh, at the bar, everybody, at the bar. Uh, it's called... 
Yeah. <laughs> it's called Brief Ecstasy, and it's, uh, it's a great film. It really is a fantastic film. Our guest is uh, the great Charles Barr, who wrote... It's an, it's an early Ealing film, and, and Charles Barr wrote the definitive book about Ealing Studios. So that's in two weeks' time, and uh, come back, tell all your friends, and uh, see you then. There singing, sadly, on that occasion. We could maybe do some singing. Thank you to Gary Yershon for being a great guest and for leading a splendid bit of community singing. Community singing on a podcast? Who ever heard of such a thing? And you may have been confused there when we all got excited when Paul, the manager of the keynote, did something with technology and I didn't explain what was happening. What he did was to project the lyrics of the song onto the big screen and then followed the words along panto style with a big arrow. Going above and beyond the call of duty is what we've come to expect from Paul, so thanks to him as usual and also to the rest of the team on duty that day at the keynote, Zoe and Amina. Thanks also to our guest sound recorders for this week, Never Miss Syrian, who was ably assisted by Robin Warren, who turns up every week like a bad penny. Kino Quickies is produced by me, Damdalagi, and our resident quickie expert is the noble Dr Lawrence Napper of King's College London. Thank you for listening, and don't forget our sixth and final film, Brief Ecstasy, on May 22nd. You'll find a booking link at kinoquickies.com. See you soon, and bye for now. Mm-hmm.